All right, so we've been in a, uh, a series called Contending for the Kingdom. We've got one or two more parts of this, and then we're going to be kind of focusing back upon spiritual gifts and bringing in kind of the, the, where the Lord is kind of leading us as a church in the broader stream of shared leadership and gifts and lanes and what's your lane and we're more establishing this at restoration in 2023. Um, and then, who knows where the Lord's going to take us. One of the things that uh, I have on my heart to teach on is the joy, the joyful heart of God. And so um, I'll be prepping notes for that. We started out this series um, talking about a crisis, that there's a crisis of hope con- concerning the kingdom of God, and that only 27% or one-fifth of the church actually believes that Jesus is going to return to the earth and restore all things, fulfill the promise of God. So we started out with that kind of crisis and tried to lay a foundation of understanding that would be unshakable in your hearts concerning the desire to see the kingdom established, to contend for it. And so we had a few sessions on that. I'll be referring to those um, a little bit specifically in our next session in, in a way of review. But today, I want to address the preaching of the kingdom subject head on. What does that mean to preach the kingdom of God? That They preached the kingdom of God is near you, that they were equipped to be the witnesses of Jesus. And so I want to skip all the way down to Roman numeral two in your notes, and you can read the review on your own. Just go straight to Roman numeral two. So as we've looked at the kingdom of God, understanding what it is biblically, it is the establishment or the, re- the restoration of all things, God fulfilling his promise through the rule and reign of Jesus. That is the kingdom of God. And how do we preach this then? What does that mean? So letter A, in my opinion, the modern church has greatly misapplied and misunderstood the repeated New Testament theme of preaching the gospel of the kingdom. You guys ever preach the gospel of the kingdom? And what has generally happened, this was my story. We actually talked about this in a life group this week. I said, what did that mean to you growing up? What did that phrase, how did you interpret that? How was it taught? And the entire life group, we're all from different backgrounds, you know, different church backgrounds and and, and that sort of thing. We all said, well, for us, the, the idea of preaching the kingdom or the kingdom of God was synonymous with the message of forgiveness of sins. It was the altar call. It was the, Jesus has died on the cross, and if you ask him to come into your heart and repent of your sins, you will go to heaven and live forever. You'll be forgiven. That was the gospel of the kingdom. That's what it meant to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And I'm sure you have maybe gone there in this series and went, wow, that's true, and that's awesome, and we love that, but that's not the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is a promise that God gave to Adam and Eve, that gave to Abraham, that gave to Abraham's children, that 
prophesied through all the prophets that a Messiah ruling king was going to come to the earth and restore all things and do away with sin and death forever. Now, spiritually, there's some application there to what happened with Jesus' sacrificial work on the cross and his resurrection. There's some spiritual aspects there. But the problem is, not that's not a problem, but the fullness of the kingdom is physical and literal. Right? And we've talked about this in past sessions. So, most Christians interpret this theme, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, as preaching the message of forgiveness of sins through faith. Though this is a critical message, critical message, it falls very short of preaching the gospel of the kingdom, biblically. If you take another look at the language used with the message and the demonstration that went along with it, it's clear that they were talking about something far beyond the forgiveness of sins. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at this. Let's go ahead and flip the page. Let's start with the first time we see it. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. This is the first time we see this idea brought forth in Scripture. Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It says this, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When John the Baptist proclaimed the kingdom of heaven was at hand, which literally translated means is near you or has come near so in some of your translation, it'll actually say that. New King James says is, is at hand. Um, I believe the NIV and a few other translations say the kingdom of heaven is near or has come near you. Because that's literally what that word means. This phrase is given greater clarity as we see how it's used in the rest of Scripture. So this phrase is repeated. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Go out and preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This phrase was used any time Jesus was physically near or an aspect of the kingdom of God was experienced. If someone was healed, the message was the kingdom of God has come upon you. Right? When Jesus was near, the kingdom of God is at hand. It was never understood as a proclamation that the kingdom of God had actually come or was slowly coming. Why do we know this? Because across the board, and we've looked at this in all past sessions, so if you need to go back and listen to a few sessions, especially last week, we talked about how the apostles post the resurrection of Jesus still said the kingdom of God is yet coming and we want to contend for it to come. Right? So it wasn't when they preached the kingdom of God is at hand, they definitely didn't mean it was there or their message wouldn't have been pray for it to come. All right? It was a proclamation that an aspect of the coming kingdom had been experienced. When someone got healed, when the blind man's eyes were opened, when messages about righteousness were being preached to the masses, the kingdom of God aspects of that promise were being felt and experienced. And the kingdom of God in that moment to those people had come upon them for a, a window so they could feel it. Right? 
Well, whether or not you say right to that, let me prove it to you. All right, so Jesus then, Matthew 4, so we're in Matthew 3, we're just going to skip one chapter. Jesus goes into the desert, he's tempted by Satan, he comes out of the desert, and he begins to preach. And what does he preach? Well, it's the same message. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or the kingdom of heaven is near you. Let's look at chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, verse 28. Look at this. So Jesus is talking with the Pharisees about where his authority comes from and what he's representing. And he says, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. You've experienced it. When you see a demon flee, you've tasted the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. This is really huge if we look at it in context. He called the 12 disciples together, gave them power and authority over all devils, and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now look at how you can't disconnect those things. You have power. I'm giving you power, right, to have authority over all devils and to cure diseases, thus allowing you to preach the kingdom. You see how that's connected. And to heal the sick. Then let's look at chapter 10. So they've, they've been given power. Then Luke 10, 9 through 11. Heal the sick there and say to them, when you heal the sick is the idea, heal the sick first, heal the sick and then say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Whatever city you enter and they don't receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Right? So... They were to do a, some sort of sign or wonder or miracle. I mean, it's fairly clear. Healing the sick, casting out demons. And when that happened, they were to preach, the kingdom of God has come upon you. You've felt it. Therefore, repent. Right, is the idea. And believe. Let's look at 9 through 11. Oh, we just did. I'm sorry. So now here's my question, gang. If these guys were able to preach the kingdom of God previous to Jesus' work on the cross, what message was the kingdom of God? You ever thought about that, right? Like, they don't have a theology. They didn't understand that he was even going to die for them. That's the part they resisted, right? Right up to the end. And they preached it with boldness, the kingdom of God. Right? So they understood what it was. They weren't confused. And they preached it with power. So in my opinion, you can't have Jesus' preaching 
John the Baptist preaching and the disciples preaching be the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It didn't happen. They didn't have a theology for it. And again, all of the disciples for sure resisted that idea. They didn't understand. So they surely couldn't have preached it with any kind of clarity. So what is happening? What are they preaching? Demonstration number two. The demonstrations of power that we see in the scriptures were in accordance with the promises of the kingdom and were given as proof to establish the promise of the coming kingdom and the identity of the Messiah, period. And this has to be our working definition, biblically. So what do I mean is, is that the Old Testament, the prophetic scripture says, when the kingdom of God comes, all diseases will be healed. When the kingdom of God comes, the dead will be brought to life. When the kingdom of God comes, righteousness will be worldwide and preached and known. When the kingdom of God comes, all demons will be done. These are the promises of the Old Testament. I love how Jesus, when he is given the, the floor of the church, he goes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to read this today. It's going to be fulfilled in your hearing. And he reads Isaiah 61. He says, I have come, right, to bind up the brokenhearted, to heal the sick, and to bring into, uh, to, to open blind eyes and to bring light to darkness. Right? He's quoting Isaiah 61, which in its greater context is clearly a messianic passage. I want to read Isaiah 35, and and hopefully this kind of helps a little bit bring it into greater clarity. Isaiah 35, it's 10 verses long, so we can all read it together. Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the wasteland will be glad, and the desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice With joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. And with recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. The lame, so those, the paralytics, will begin to walk and leap and run, right, is the idea. The tongue of the dumb sing, for waters will both burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool, and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals, where each lay, there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway will be there. A road, it'll be called the highway of holiness, but the unclean shall not pass over it. But it shall be for all others, whoever walks this road, although the fool shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor any ravenous beast go up to it. It shall not be found there, but redeemed will walk there. And the ransom of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads, and they shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away forever." Okay, so Isaiah 35, clearly, 
is a messianic passage. It is the fulfillment of the promise of restoration of all things. It's talking about Israel being a desert and being turned into a lush garden again through the rulership of God from Zion. And every disease and every lameness being healed and every eye being opened, right? Now, this is interesting. So we have this passage, and this happens a ton. I mean, there are so many scriptures that speak about the realities of the kingdom, what it's going to be like. And every time that you saw a miracle sign or wonder done, it was in accordance to those promises, proving that Jesus was who he said he was and proving the validity of these promises being literally fulfilled one day. So, Luke 7, 19 through 22. Let's turn there. John, calling two of his disciples to them. So this is John the Baptist. He calls two of his followers to him. And he says, I want you to go to Jesus and I want you to ask him a question. Now, John's in prison right now, and he's got followers. John the Baptist had a a bunch of followers, a bunch of disciples, and he calls two of them to his prison cell, and he goes, I want you to go ask Jesus this question. Are you the coming one, or should we look for another? So he's saying, "Are are you the Messiah? Are you this promised king that all the prophets talk about? And when the man had come to him... They said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, Jesus, saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Look at, look at what is written next. The writer says, and at that very hour that those disciples came to ask him, Jesus cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave them sight. Jesus answered them and said, go and tell John the things that you've seen and heard. What things? Those things right there in verse 21. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What did he just do? He just quoted Isaiah 35. And he quoted Isaiah 61. And he quoted Hosea that says the dead will be raised up. Isaiah 29, 25 that says the dead will be raised and the blind will be able to see and the demons will flee. Okay? He quotes this and says, how can you ask me this? (laughs) Right? Like, open your eyes. We are demonstrating if I'm the one doing this and the other signs that you see are done in my name, then who am I? And what should you believe about it? Jesus has had it with the Pharisees by this time. They come to him and says, show us a sign. And he goes, the only reason that you are not seeing these signs is because you're wicked and adulterous. And I'm not going to show you any more signs. Except for the sign of, of, uh, he says, the sign of Jonah that I'll be in the belly and then be raised up three days later. But what would that be like? What would that be like? You're healing the sick. You're walking out. the very. This has never happened before. They're walking out the very promises of the kingdom, and they're doing it over and over and in masses and in thousands and in hundreds. 
walking out the very promises of the kingdom and saying, this is the kingdom, I'm the king, here it is. And then the Pharisees come and say, show us a sign, you're the king. And Jesus is like, there's not enough signs for you. You won't see it, you won't believe it, that I'm the Messiah. No matter how many signs I give you. The command. Just as he and as his disciples did, he is commissioning and is powering his church to do the same thing. We are called to preach the coming kingdom through messaging and practical demonstrations of power until the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the ends of the earth because that's the command. Right? Acts, two, Acts 1, we looked at, we've looked at Acts 1 through 8 a bunch of times. Probably have it memorized by now. Right? Peter says, Jesus, post-resurrection, he's preached to him 40 days about the kingdom. And, he, and Peter goes, is it this time where you'll bring the fullness of it? And he says, no. It's not this time, but that time is coming. In the meantime, I'm going to give you power to be my witnesses of the kingdom And I want you to preach it to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1. Romans 15. Let's look at that passage. Paul's talking about his ministry. When he writes the letters to the Romans, this is years and years into Paul's ministry as an apostle. Okay, it's towards the kind of towards the end of his time. And he says this, Nevertheless, brethren, I have written to you more boldly. I'm in Romans 15, chapter 15 through 19, or verse 15 through 19. So chapter 15, verse 15 through 19. I've written to you more boldly on some points as reminding you because of the grace of God that's been given to me. So because I've been given power by the Lord to demonstrate and preach. That I might be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Christ means Messiah in that language. Jesus, the promised coming one. To the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God. That the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus for the things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of the things which Christ has accomplished through me in word or deed to make the disciples, or I'm sorry, the Gentiles obedient. So he goes, here's what I'm not going to do. I am not going to say that I did these signs and wonders and miracles. He did. He did them. Why is this important? Because the message is that he's the king. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. And so if we demonstrate aspects of the kingdom, the thought might be that we're the Messiah. Does that make sense? Right? So he goes, it's so important for you to understand this grace, this power that's been given to me has been given to me by him. And I dare not. He says, I will not speak of those things as if they were mine. He goes, however... In mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit, I have done these things, so that from Jerusalem and roundabout to Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. 
I want you to wrestle with that for a second. So there's a preaching of the gospel, but it's not fully preached unless it's accompanied with what? Signs and wonders. Why? Because the signs and wonders are a witness, a proof to all the prophetic scriptures of what the kingdom is and who would do it. And so he goes, you can talk all day long about how Jesus is the coming king, but he goes, it's fully preached when you say, here, I'll prove it. The the king is going to heal all sickness, and in the name of Jesus, be healed. And they go, oh, okay, he's the king. He's the one that fulfills and is going to fully fulfill the promise. That's the idea that he says here. Now, I'm not trying to take away, please don't hear me, trying to take away from the necessity of the message of the cross. I am not doing that. However, I am saying that if you only preach the message of the cross, that you are not preaching the full kingdom message. You're only preaching a part of it. And that the language that's laid forward The necessity of the fullness of preaching the kingdom necessitates that you're talking about the coming kingdom of God and demonstrating it through signs and wonders. Just like the disciples did, just like Jesus did, just like John the Baptist did, so we do. All right. Now I want to get into a little bit of theology. Um, Eschatology, theology-ish. There's kind of two positions out there, and I'm going to summarize the next points, and you guys can flip the page. I'm going to summarize some things. Within this message of the coming kingdom, there's a couple of positions that are kind of prominent for those that believe that the king will actually come, that the kingdom of God will actually be established on the earth, okay? There's two camps. There's one camp that says that will be accomplished by the spirit-filled believers doing signs and wonders and miracles and basically Christianizing the planet through that work. All right? That's, in general terms, that is a pre-millennial view. All right? So I'm going to read that real quick of what that means and how, what that might mean. The position holds that the kingdom will be established by the church walking in signs and wonders, defeating darkness under the rulership and authority of Jesus from heaven through the Spirit. Okay? And that the, that the kind of the earth will get Christianized and get more and more righteous and better and better, and then Jesus will return. One, one way of viewing it. The second way is called post-millennial, and this, this is saying... Actually, the fullness of the kingdom doesn't come until Jesus actually arrives on the scene. So we demonstrate it in part, but the fullness comes when he arrives on the scene and he implements it in the fullness. And until then, things actually, at least in the world, get darker and darker and worse and worse. That's kind of, I mean, it's almost two separate swings of a pendulum. I want to look at letter B here. On the last page. So in general, I'm being real general here, so please don't crucify me at the end. That's not what all post-millennials believe. I'm being real general. 
in general, the premillennial position is correct in its mission, but wrong in an eschatological interpretation. And the postmillennial position is wrong in mission, but correct in the eschatological interpretation. How many of you guys know what I just said? The mission of a premillennialist, meaning we're going to Christianize the planet, their mission is what? Their, their mission is right. We're going to demonstrate the kingdom. We're going to bring the kingdom of God to every sphere of society. We're going to drive out devils. We're going to heal every sickness worldwide. This is our mission to the ends of the earth. That's the right mission. What's the wrong eschatological position? Jesus needs to return for that. They can only demonstrate it in part. We looked at this last week. It is way too clear. There is no kingdom without a king. That he is the great hope. He personally, ruling from Jerusalem, from the throne of David, is the cry throughout the New Testament, post-ascension, come, Lord Jesus, come. Not, give us more power, Lord Jesus. That's not the cry. That's not the apostolic cry. Now, the other camp says things are just going to get darker and darker. Okay? Their interpretation of eschatological things is right. But their mission then kind of becomes hang in there. It kind of becomes this, well... Things are just going to get worse and worse. Come, Lord Jesus. And there's this kind of lackadaisical escapism, just, oh, things are going to get real bad. Just come, Lord Jesus, and fix, you know, like there's this resistance to engaging the world, almost. The key for both of these groups, in my opinion, is what the promise of the kingdom biblically is and what being a preaching witness of that kingdom looks like. So the promise of the kingdom biblically is that Jesus, the Messiah, rules and reigns on the earth and brings about full righteousness and full restoration and heals every sickness and disease. But the preaching of the kingdom demands that we engage this dark world with that message and with signs and wonders. Okay? That's, so when you have that, you, you kind of those camps kind of meet in the middle. I want to look at Matthew 13. So eschatological interpretation is that things will get darker and darker. Things will get worse and worse. Evil will get worse and worse and worse. That's, that's the eschatological promise. Okay, leading up to the coming of God. I'm going to just look real quickly at Matthew 13. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13. You can read it in 24 through 29. He tells a parable about the kingdom of heaven being a field and that the king sows good seed in the field and then the enemy comes and solds tares or weeds in the field. And the servants of the king come and they say, hey, should we rip out all these weeds? Should we take away all the wickedness? And Jesus says, no. 
Let it grow up together. And so if we could just read it here. The enemy has done this. The servant said, do you want us to go and gather these tares, these weeds out of the field? He says, no. Well, lest you gather up the tares, you'll uproot the wheat with them. But let both grow together until the harvest. At that time of the harvest, I'll say to the reapers, gather together the tares and bind them and burn them and gather the wheat into the barn. Now he interprets it. Isn't that great that he just says, I'll tell you exactly what this means. Just a few verses later, 36, if you want to read it. 36 through 41. They said, can you explain this to us, please? He says, sure. Verse 37. He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom. Gang, that's us. The field is the world. The good seeds are the son of the kingdom. The tares are the sons of the wicked ones. Gang, that's not us. That is an That's the evil demonic agenda of Satan, to kill, destroy, and steal. Walked out on a global scale in every nation. He says, the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is when, gang? At the end of the age, is what it says. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. In other words, wickedness grows up, increases together with the witness of the gospel of the kingdom, and the end of the age, they're both fully mature. And then the harvest comes to to end all wickedness. And he goes, it's my return that does it. So there is no theology, and I just got a bunch of verses there for you on your own. You know, you can read them under number one, eschatological interpretation. There's no eschatological interpretation that says that preceding the coming of the Lord, things are just going to get better and better. There is an eschatological witness that says that the preaching of the kingdom will come to maturity. And I think it's easy to maybe think that means things get better and better, but what it means is is that the witness of the kingdom gets more and more public in and, and, and with the rise of wickedness. All right? Now, you can read those all on your own. And the mission to be a witness, this command. And Erica, you can come on up. And we can put out communion. The command to be a witness of the kingdom and the empowerment of the Spirit to walk out the command serves as a clear missional statement to all believers. So the command to be a witness of the kingdom, and then he gives us what? The Holy Spirit to do it. Okay? So he gives us a command, then he gives us the Holy Spirit to do it. This is a clear mission for all believers. To preach the kingdom of God. The escapist and the disengaged mindset that often accompanies the premillennial view, in other words, it's just going to get darker and darker, so just hang in there, is an affront to the command to be a witness of the kingdom. Because a witness of the kingdom stands up and demonstrates what the kingdom is, not in the church, gang, in the public arena. 
You guys in here don't need me to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. I hope. But those that disbelieve need to see it. Why? Because the command is, I want every single person to know who I am, and I want to give them all time to repent. Second Peter, why is he delaying? Because he's long-suffering in about bringing this promise, and he wants all to come to repentance and that none perish. How does that happen? Because the gospel of the kingdom will get preached with such power worldwide that no one can deny it. Matthew 24, 14, huge statement. Matthew 24, how many of you guys like that one? Trials, tribulations, you're all going to die, right? I mean, you just, wickedness, there'll be lawlessness rampant. Matthew 24, earthquakes and various plagues and diseases, worse and worse, lawlessness abounding. Well, what does he say happens in that context? But this gospel of the kingdom in that contest of things getting worse and worse and lawlessness abounding and betrayal and persecution and all this stuff, shakings and earthquakes, he goes, in that context, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. And the idea, well, now we know what that means. This gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of, of salva- you know, salvation of sins, that's part of it, right? But the fullness, the demonstrable part, the gospel of the kingdom will be given to, as a witness to every nation, and then the end will come. All right, John 3, I'm going to end with, and and you can start playing, Erica. The final consideration that must remain the foundation of all this. So eschatological kind of views and hopes and what's the mission and what's the message, all of that stuff. At the heart of it has to be the intimate love and friendship with God. Not only do lovers outwork workers, but the work that they do is from a pure heart and done by friends and bridal partners eager for the bridegroom. John the Baptist, he stands up and he's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. He's got thousands coming to him. Jesus comes on the scene and they say, hey, John, Your church is shrinking. They're all going to Jesus. They're all leaving your teaching and your discipleship. And they're going to him. And what does he say? I want to go back a verse. That's this one right here. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But a friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. So he goes, I'm actually not that joyful that thousands are coming to me. Because what makes me joyful is that they are all receiving a friendship and a heart for the bridegroom to come. And he goes, as that happens, this joy of mine is fulfilled. I'm not here 
to build my ministry. I'm not given power for signs and wonders so we can have a, a, a national title. He goes, I stand as a friend of the bridegroom, as a pointing to the bridegroom. And guys, this has got to remain the why behind the what of preaching the kingdom. There has to be a longing for the bridegroom, an intimate friendship, a love for Jesus that is the foundation to signs and wonders and miracles and preaching the kingdom of God. Because if you don't, you're building your own. I believe the Lord's going to do stuff in Pagosa Springs. I believe some of these words are, are very true. That there's going to be an increase of signs and wonders and miracles. That there's going to be an increase of a witness to the kingdom. I believe that with all my heart. But this is not about restoration fellowship. This isn't about putting us on the map. This is not about, like, I don't even know. But some of the things that we make it. If we see Pagosa Springs be an area of refuge where righteousness dwells, I believe we will. I believe this is an area of refuge, safety in the time of trouble, of peace, the prophetic destiny. But I believe if we lose this message of this demonstration of the kingdom is for a cry to arise, come Lord Jesus, then we have missed why he's brought that all about for us. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and stand? I want to pray over you. We have communion up here. of you have had zeal for revival. Some of you had zeal for to see the power of God break out. You have a clear leadership of God on your life to pray for, contend for, and see those things. That's uh, Some of you are in here. I know that's you. And I feel like the Lord is inviting you and saying, it's not just about revival. It's not just about keeping wicked agendas held back, God blessing America and all those things. That's good stuff. But if you lose sight, I just want to restore you to the bridegroom, the bridal cry to the bridegroom, come Lord Jesus. Let it be your foundation. Some of you business owners out there wanting, you want kingdom in your business. Amen. And praise God but have this be the foundation of it. Some of you out there that are saying, just, just going to get darker and darker, and hey, it is what it is, and we're just going to endure it. I just feel like the Lord wants to give you courage to engage and say no. Like you're actually supposed to be a witness 
saying no to wicked agendas and wicked, you know, evil powers and presences in your, in your family's life, in your own heart, and in your, in your city. But it's not just for victory's sake. There's a gospel of the king to be preached because the bridegroom king is coming for a bride. So Lord, I just ask that you would center us. That you would plant us. I believe this, guys, that when the church embraces the true bridal cry, I think we're going to see an explosion of signs and wonders and miracles. Because the message that they preach in conjunction with it will be pure. For those of you that are contending for more, I encourage you, continue to contend. For those of you that are shy, contend for the kingdom. going to let the Lord minister to you guys. I'm going to be up front. I'd like Andrew Baker to come up. Uh, Chase, if you'd come up as well. We want to pray over folks. If you have prayer needs. I'm just asking, like, I feel like some of you, the Lord's going to kind of adjust a little bit your kind of your mission and your worldview, your eschatological view. Let him do it. Talk to him about it.